Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's Strategica podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, bringing you content from Strategica, Hoover's online journal of national security and military history, which you can find at hoover.org. And in the most recent issue, Strategica is tackling the question, what does North Korea hope to achieve through the possession of nuclear weapons? And here to discuss that with us today is the author of this issue's historical backgrounder, Professor Barry Strauss, the Bryce and Edith M. Bomar Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell University and a member of the Hoover Institution's Military History Working Group. Barry, thanks for being with us. Uh, You're welcome. Thrilled to be here. All right. With this backgrounder, you have the responsibility of putting North Korea in some sort of historical context for us. Not exactly an easy task. And the first way you propose thinking about it is saying North Korea, to some extent, looks like ancient Sparta with nuclear weapons. So explain the similarities and maybe the places where the analogy doesn't quite hold. Sure. Um, Both Sparta and North Korea were garrison states. Uh, They were militaristic. Uh, They were austere. They were communistic. They were isolated. They were secretive. They were suspicious of outsiders. Um, in, to one extent or one degree or another, they were totalitarian, um, and they were often brutal to their own inhabitants. Uh, Sp- ancient Sparta had uh, helots who were serfs. North Korea has the entire population uh, at the mercy of its masters, and, and that's um, often fairly grim for most of the people who live in North Korea. Uh, as you know, um, uh, there was tremendous famine there in the 1990s, uh, and it killed 2 million people, which is about 10% of the population. To be sure, there are differences, and I've gotten an earful from some of my friends who are fans of Sparta, uh, and they point out that Sparta, <laughs> Sparta had many nobler purposes than uh, North Korea. Um, and Sparta was a constitutional monarchy. Uh, it prized freedom uh, at least for some of its people in a way that North Korea doesn't. Um, and it's, uh, it's hard to imagine that North Korea's ideals will live on in the future the way Spartan ideals live on. So the analogy is imperfect. And after the Spartan analogy, you contend that it, it perhaps makes more sense to think of North Korea as what you call a pirate state. So explain what that term means and how the country fits that template. Well, we might, uh, the more familiar term today might be a rogue state, but it occurred to me that in some ways a state like North Korea is like a pirate. It engages in crime. Uh, In its case, it's blackmail. Uh, It uses the threat of nuclear weapons to get the outside world to provide food and aid and assistance. Um, And uh, it engages in a weapons trade around the world. Uh, it's a leader in the proliferation of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. Um, and certainly against the spirit, if not the letter of um, anti-pro- uh, anti-proliferation uh, treaties. By the same token, like the ancient pirates or like successful ancient pirates, North Korea knows there are limits beyond which it shouldn't go. Uh, in the ancient world, for instance, the pirates uh, knew that they could tweak Rome, but they drew the line at actually... In engaging in, in, in open war on Rome. They would engage in what we might call today low-intensity warfare against the Romans. That's the way the North Koreans uh, uh, behave. They learned their lesson in the Korean War not to um, 
um, they, will, they would never do again what they did during the Korean War, which is simply to invade uh, across the uh, demilitarized zone, invade across the boundary between the two Koreas. Uh, but they certainly enjoy tweaking the enemy, engaging in low-intensity operations against, against the enemy. And they wouldn't mind at all if this drew the enemy uh, into attacking them so that they could be the victimized one and then continue the war. So let's talk about that a little bit, that idea of a sort of a ceiling for provocation. You're willing yes. to go this far but but no further. And as you just mentioned, you you trace this in the piece back to the lessons of the Korean War. So for people who aren't familiar or maybe have you know haven't heard about it even since high school, give us kind of the thumbnail sketch, the the reader's digest version of how this played out and what the lessons specifically were that the North Koreans learned from that experience that they're applying even to this day. Sure. Um, it, for most of the first half of the 20th century, Korea was an occupied country colonized by the Japanese. At the end of World War II in 1949, 1945, excuse me, uh, the Japanese leave, Korea is liberated, and it's divided into uh, two occupation zones, north of the 38th parallel, Soviets, south of the 38th parallel, the Americans. And those two sides quickly leave, but they leave behind them. Uh, two states, North Korea uh, and South Korea, uh, more or less as we know them today. And both sides uh, had as their goal to reunify the Korean peninsula. Korea had been unified for a thousand years, and the division of the peninsula seemed um, uh, temporary and unnatural. Uh, the North Koreans in particular um, were eager to do this. Both sides were eager to do it, but the North Koreans... Uh, successfully persuaded their hegemon, the Soviets, to allow them to invade the South. Uh, the reason for that is that in 1949, uh, the Soviets uh, felt on the one hand that the West uh, was getting stronger through the creation of NATO. On the other hand, that the Soviet bloc was getting stronger uh, through the successful uh, detonation of an, a Soviet atom bomb in the summer of 1949. And the other thing that was really crucial was that the United States decided to move its defensive perimeter from the Northeast Asian mainland to uh, the islands off uh, Asia, like Japan, the Philippines, etc., and so forth. And the Soviets took this, took the Americans at their word and decided they're not going to defend South Korea. And so they gave... Uh, the, the Korean, North Korean uh, leader Kim Il-sung permission to invade the South, which he did on June 25th, 1950. Uh, to their surprise, the Americans decided that they would defend South Korea after all. Uh, and the war effort was put uh, under the control of Douglas MacArthur, who was a, a brilliant general. Washington began to put resources into it. And after some uh, bad defeats in the beginning, the Americans actually uh, reconquered South Korea and pushed the North Koreans back. They conquered North Korea and they got as far as the Chinese border. When in the winter of 1950, the Chinese invaded and practically pushed the Americans uh, back off the peninsula. Um, to make a long story short, the Americans were able to uh, stabilize the situation, uh, push the Chinese back out of South Korea. And they engaged in a, the war was devastating to the whole Korean Peninsula. Uh, the North suffered a, a very heavy aerial bombardment, aerial campaign from the United States. Uh, and at the end of the war, things went back very close to what they had been in the beginning. And so the lesson that the North Koreans took away from this is they barely had survived. And that 
for the, for the sake of future survival, they could never invade the South again uh, the way that they did, the way that they had. But they were also convinced um, they, they remained an armed state. They remained eager to uh, reconquer the South. Um, and so uh, they developed the policy that they followed, that they're now following, which should not be one of an actual invasion of the South, but rather a policy of provocation um, and, uh, and growing strength in the North. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. I mean, you set the table very well for today, where you have the North being provocative towards the South, being provocative towards the United States at times. In addition to all of the little isolated incidents, you have the most visible, I guess, in some sense, move, the nuclear weapons program. So taken as a whole, this whole range of actions, what, from the North Korean perspective, what, what is the point? What are the goals? What does this accomplish for the North Korean government? Well, I mean, the first thing that it accomplishes is that it ensures that North Korea will survive. The North Koreans feel that nobody is going to attack them uh, when they can defend themselves with nuclear weapons. Uh, Although their current nuclear arsenal is is extremely limited compared to a nuclear superpower, um, they feel that it does uh, ensure their survival. It also ensures that they get attention from other players from South Korea and China to Japan and the United States. It would be easier to ignore North Korea if they didn't have this weapon. But they, the, the nuclear weapons make them important and dangerous. And they can, they can cause a great deal of trouble both in Northeast Asia and in the wider world. It also gives them, um, if you will, a sense of their own importance. After all, no state wants to feel that's insignificant. Uh, and this gives the North Koreans a sense of much greater importance in the world. One of the sort of fascinating aspects of your piece is there's a look in there at the political geography of the Korean Peninsula and why that is so important for people in both countries who'd like to see it reunified. So explain to us a little about the strategic significance of the Korean Peninsula and the history and its location, why that's significant. Great. The Korean Peninsula is actually one of the most strategic pieces of real estate on the planet. Um, it, it is a land bridge between Asia and Japan. It's separated only by, it's, I should say nearly a land bridge. It's separated only by 120 miles of water uh, from Japan, Korea is. Um, and um, Japanese invaders in the past have attempted to get to China uh, from, uh, through the Korean Peninsula. And likewise, uh, invaders from, would-be invaders from Asia have attempted to get to Japan uh, from uh, Korea. Um, Korea borders Russia, it borders China, it borders Japan, it's not all that far from Taiwan. It is very strategic and very valuable real estate. It's it's one of the reasons why it has been very fought over, territory that's been fought over a great deal in history again and again. So the final question I'll pose to you, you note in your piece at Strategica, and I'm quoting you here, what may be the most peculiar thing about North Korea that much of its leverage comes from the threat not of attack, but of collapse. Explain that. Yeah, that is a, a very strange part of the situation. Um, in a way, the North Korea, one of the things the North Koreans are doing is pointing a gun at their own head and saying, in effect, feed us or uh, we will <laughs> And nobody really wants that. Um, China, for China, the Korean Peninsula is immensely important for its security and always has been. The Chinese 
are not unhappy with the current state of things in the Korean Peninsula. That is, the South being separated from China by a buffer state, the South, an American ally, there's a buffer in between. The Chinese feel okay about their security. If North Korea collapses, then the situation changes and the Chinese are going to have to intervene in some form or other and worry about the future of the Korean Peninsula. The Chinese do not want an American ally uh, on their land border. The South Koreans, in some ways, would be overjoyed if North Korea collapsed and the South Koreans could reunify the Korean, Korean Peninsula. But many South Koreans who you speak to will say, we really hope this happens, but not tomorrow. Um, because um, patriotic as though the South Koreans are, it would be tremendously expensive to reunify the Korean Peninsula. It would be a, a huge uh, human undertaking, an enormous amount of rebuilding that would have to, have to be done. Um, in some ways, it's easier to leave things the way that they are. Japan, likewise, feels that it has a very urgent security concern in what happens in the Korean Peninsula. And the Japanese would be very concerned if North Korea collapses as well. So it's the odd part of, this, of, the, of the situation. The North Koreans know it and they play it for all it's worth. All right. Our guest has been Professor Barry Strauss, the Bryson Edith M. Bomar Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell University and a member of the Hoover Institution's Military History Working Group. You can read his commentary on North Korea, as well as that of Walter Russell Meade and Thomas Donnelly, by visiting strategica at hoover.org. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening. <laughs>